0: this series on on the christian worldview we've been looking at some of those truths that are unchanged by time you know as we think about a christian worldview uh that's really what it what it is it's the recognition that the bible is god's word and as god's word it 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 has supreme value and authority for our lives and the way that we think about everything there are, there are no areas of our lives that, that, that are not affected by or that aren't under the sway or authority of Scripture. It speaks, and when it speaks, it speaks to every area, not just the select areas that we allow it to speak. And so this morning, let's look once again to Genesis chapter 1 and beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we have the account of creation and we have the creation mandate. And as part of this creation account, one of the things that we've just been driving at and and sort of the foundation that we're looking at all these different areas uh, is the fact that when God made human beings, he made us distinctively different from everything else that he made. He made animals, He made plants, He made universes. But when God made man and woman, He made them in His image. And as image bearers of God, we are unique and and especially unique in the value that is assigned to human life. And we've seen some of the implications of this. We've we've seen the fact that this means that we ought to care for the poor because the poor are image bearers of God. Their their life has as much value as and worth and dignity as our lives. So we ought to care for them. We ought not to be racist. We've seen how that touches on the issue of race. It doesn't matter what color or what ethnicity, uh, where you're from. If you are a human being, you're made in God's image and we all have equal value and worth. And so we should not make distinctions and value people differently on their, uh, based on their uh, socioeconomic status or on their race or any of those things. All human life is valuable and worthy. This morning we're going to take this same principle of the image of God and we're going to consider the issue of abortion. As we come to the issue of abortion, what, one of the things that I want to do right away uh, is sometimes you got to, you know, when I, when I go to work sometimes... Uh, my desk gets very messy. And there are all kinds of things on my desk. and they, they distract and they take away from the task that's at hand. I see this paper here. My mind just gets cluttered. One of the things that, that is good to do sometimes is just clear the desk off. You've got to get rid of everything that might distract you from the task that's at hand. And uh, that's what we kind of need to do when it comes to this issue of abortion. There are a lot of other issues. There are a lot of other things that might be brought up. But what I want us to focus on is the main issue today. And I don't want us to get uh, down this track or down that track. Uh, I want to talk about the main issue. And so one of the things I think that distracts us when it comes to this issue of abortion is that it's an issue that's been politicized. It's become, in our day, a, a political issue. And so we even hear that and we automatically begin to think about the last debate and we automatically begin to think about the elections and who we should vote for and all of those things. And, and as we think through this issue later on down the road, we, we might look at what might be some of those implications for how, how this truth applies to, to the political realm. But what I want us to see, first of all, is that this issue isn't first and foremost a political issue. It is a moral issue. So we don't need to allow our, our party affiliation or, or the way that we've been brought up to think about politics to, to trump or to, to overrule uh, the Bible and the authority of Scripture. One of the things that I, I think is important to say, first of all, is that, again, as we're thinking about a Christian worldview, is that there's nothing off limits. You know, sometimes we, we hear that and we say, well, we're not supposed to talk about politics. But if the Bible's God's word, There's no area that's off limits to God's word. If God's word speaks, it doesn't matter what political affiliation you have. If it offends your your particular uh, political affiliation, God's work will speak. And I, as your pastor, will preach and speak where the Bible speaks. Now, I think we've got to be careful because I I do think there are some issues that are a matter of indifference. You might have one opinion and I could have a different opinion. Take, take, for example, just the, the idea of, of economics and fiscal policy. We might have different ideas about, uh, you, you know, uh, should the government be limited and, and uh, should we try to hold back and, and keep taxes low? Or for another person, they say, no, well, you know, the, the rich have so much and there are so many things that need to be done in a society. And, and so we ought to raise taxes and, and they ought to pay their, their fair share and, and there's different ideas about that, and, and we as Christians might be able to disagree on some of those. And I, I, I'm not, you're not going to hear me anytime soon preach a sermon on that particular topic. But when the Bible speaks to an issue, and it's a moral issue, then we are compelled to speak and to speak boldly and to speak clearly and let the chips fall where they may in terms of political affiliation and, and what we think there. But when scripture speaks, we we are to be clear. So one person might have a different opinion on fiscal policy. But if the government was to begin uh, to to enact something and say, well, you know, the rich have too much. So everybody just go out and steal. Right there is not a matter of fiscal policy, right? That's a clear moral issue. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, And so it's not right to go and to rob from the rich, even though we think maybe they have too much. You see the difference there. There's, one is fiscal policy. One is a clear moral issue. And, and in on the, that moral issue, we need to speak clearly. We can have discussions and, and certainly the Bible should always influence what we think about everything, even when it comes to economics. But I'm just saying there are certain things that that the Bible just doesn't speak clearly on uh, in, in a very precise way. And we ought to allow each other have differences on those areas and charity and grace toward one another and sometimes it's good not to talk about those issues so sometimes you have family members or friends and you just know there are certain things certain places we don't go in our conversation because it's just going to end up we've done it a million times before we've ruined a lot of thanksgivings and christmases uh, on that topic just going to leave that one up but but on moral issues where Bi- where the bible speaks clearly look we can't avoid it it's going to be offensive uh, but we must speak clearly. Uh, the other thing about this is, is uh, you know, this issue of abortion isn't just strictly political. It, it's moral. It's an issue... Uh, that's been around almost as long as humanity's been around. There has been uh, different practices and different customs and different cultures of the world throughout time. Even the, the Greeks and the Romans practiced different forms of, of abortion and infanticide. And so this is a moral issue that is bigger than Republicans and Democrats in in, in the year 2016. This is a, a moral issue that goes all the way back and no doubt will extend throughout the rest of human history. And we must ask, what does the word of God say? Is there something uh, that that does the Bible speak to this issue? Secondly, so let's just clear that away. I, I don't want us thinking this morning. Again, there may be political implications to what I'm going to say, but I don't want us thinking about the election. I don't want us thinking about political issues right now. I want us to answer the question, what does the Bible say? What does it teach and how do we apply it on this issue of abortion. The second thing is, is that for some some of you, perhaps this is a, a personal issue. Maybe in your past, you were a young woman and and felt compelled to have an abortion. Maybe you were the boyfriend who who pushed your girlfriend to have the abortion, or parents who didn't want their young daughter to to be saddled down with with a child at such a young age, and so you encouraged her to have an abortion. There, there are all kinds of different things and no doubt in a crowd this size, there, there are some who have been affected in that way. And, and I just want to say a couple of things on this issue. First of all, there's grace and mercy to be found. As we're going to see, I think clearly it's a sin and it's wrong and we need to be clear. But we don't need and what I don't want you to hear this morning, if that's somebody that in your past that that has occurred, I don't want you to hear that you're a bigger sinner than everybody else, that that God hates you or that there's no grace. There's no mercy for this sin. There's there's grace and mercy for all sin. We think of the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor and murderer. In before, before the Lord saved him. And in 1 Timothy, he says this, 1 Timothy 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to save, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Uh, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice what he says here. Of whom I am the foremost... I'm the greatest sinner, Paul says, that has ever lived. There's, there's not a greater sinner that, than me. And wh- why is he saying this? He says, but I received mercy for this reason. Why, Paul? Why would God save such a wretched murderer, persecutor of his church? Why would he do that? I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the greatest sinner that there could be, Jesus Christ might Display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying, listen, the purpose and the reason for God saving me is that so that no one else would ever be able to say I'm too much of a sinner. I've gone too far. I've done too many things. And God just could not save me. Paul saying, no, no, no. That's not true at all. I'm the foremost sinner and God extended grace and mercy to me so that, so that everyone else would know as a pattern and as an example that God's grace and mercy can extend to them as well. The second thing I would say to you this morning, if that's you and in some way you've been involved in this in the past through support or or if you were the one uh, that had the abortion, the remedy for the guilt that you may feel is not found in defending or in justifying your actions. The remedy for your guilt is forgiveness. And that requires, forgiveness requires, your willing admission, confession, and forsaking of sin. Jesus, or, or, or God says it through the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are not certain categories of unrighteousness or sin that, that is, is unforgivable. No, they're all unrighteousness. But notice what He says. If we confess our sins. So what I would say, don't justify it. What what you need, one person said this, you don't need an excuse, you need an exchange. You don't need to defend it and to, to try to make it sound okay in your own mind. You need to confess it, come to the Lord, find forgiveness. And when you do, there's this exchange that happens. God takes your sin and it's placed on Christ and he gives you Christ's righteousness. You get an exchange and that's what you need not an excuse. There is forgiveness to be found. What, with those things kind of off the table, uh, hopefully you can put that out of your mind if this has been something in your past, uh, or or if you're just thinking about politics, hopefully now we can sweep away the desk. It's clean, and now let's consider the main issue this morning, and I think the fundamental issue when we come to the issue of abortion is this. Our embryos and fetuses born, pre-born humans or are they something else are fetuses and embryos in their their mother's womb are they simply pre-born human beings or are they something else altogether if we can determine even a good likelihood that embryos and fetuses in their mother's womb are pre-born humans then we can say clearly the scripture would teach that that they are under all the same benefits all the same commands that scripture says so, so as we read about human beings being made in the image of God and we've talked about the issue of race and we've talked about the poor and how they're made in the image of God then the same thing would apply to these pre-born human beings if indeed they are human beings they're in the image of God they're of great value and, and worth and they ought not then to be destroyed if they're human beings then we're required that the commandment thou shalt not murder applies to them Because if they're human beings, it would be murder to end their life. If they're human beings, uh, then we are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we ought to care for them and seek to end the atrocity of abortion. And that is the question that is at hand. Are these human beings? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, the first place we've got to go, and in, in a minute we'll, we'll think through this a little bit more, but we're, we're, we're seeking a biblical worldview, right? We're seeking to look at things as God looks at things. So what we want to do then is go to Scripture, go to the Word of God and say, "How does God think about preborn uh, babies, embryos and fetuses? Does God think of them in terms of them being human beings uh, in, in a personal way, or, or are they simply just cells and, and tissue? And as we look to the Word of God. There are a few different passages that give us a clear indication of the way that God thinks about this issue. In the following passages that we're going to look at here just briefly, we're going to see that uh, the pre-born God views them as individuals whom, whom He is fashioning, He is loving, and He is appointing for service. He's in the process of fashioning, making them, He knows them and loves them, and He's appointed them for a purpose. Let's look first of all at Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14. In this passage, the psalmist writes this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So here the psalmist is writing and he's saying, God, you knew who I was in the womb. In fact, you were in the process of knitting me together. And there's just a, the psalms are poetry, right? We understand the, the process of development that, that babies go through in the mother's womb, right? There's a scientific process. But this is, this is poetic language. But notice that this is not lost. The fact that God is at work making human beings inside the mother's womb. And and the psalmist can recognize that that was me. I'm the one that was in my mother's womb. There's a personal element to this. And God is seen as the one making and fashioning the, the baby inside the mother's womb. So the question for us, if in the womb God is at work creating and fashioning a human being, would it be right for us to interfere with that process and end the work? Of God. We see that again, this idea, Job 31, Job is talking about, we read this passage in an earlier sermon. Uh, we, we, we see that uh, Job is talking about how he knows he ought to treat his servants fairly. And the reason is because God made me in the womb and God made them in the womb. And so I need to treat them as I would want to be treated. So this is Job thirty-one, fifteen. Did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? Children who are in the womb of their mother, God is at work fashioning. And God is viewing them and treating them as human beings. Abortion then would be, would be wrong. It's an, it's an assault. John Piper says this. It's an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. Just, just think about the, the arrogance that goes into this. God is at work. Fashioning a human being and you come in and say, no, we don't want this and destroy the work of God. A second thing that we see is that God loves preborn human beings. John one or Jeremiah rather Jeremiah one five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now that word no in scripture is a word that. Uh, has more to say than just the fact that he has a a recognition of who somebody is. In in Scripture, so often when it says that that someone knew someone else, it means that that they loved that person. And When it says that God knows someone, of course God knows all things and God knows all people, but when when God takes a special uh, circumstance to say, I knew you, in, in a sense he's saying, I set my love and my affection This is why the Bible can say that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived, right? Because there's more to to this idea of knowledge than just knowing who she is. And So Jeremiah says, Lord, before I I formed you in the womb, or the Lord says to, to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God saw Jeremiah as an individual, as a human being, before he was ever formed, as God was forming him in the womb. God knew who he was. In in the same sense that we asked the question before, we could ask the question this time then, should we destroy someone that God loves? These babies in the womb that are being destroyed through this process of abortion are, are individuals that God is forming, And and they're individuals that God already loves and we're coming in and destroying them. The third thing that we see, not only does God know them, not only is God in in the process of making them, God knows them, he loves them. But a third thing is that that God has a plan for them already at that stage, so again in Jeremiah one five, he says, "Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, I knew who you were. I already loved you, and I already had a plan for your life. I knew that you were going to be a prophet because that's what I wanted you to do. I was going to send you to my people so that you could preach to them and call them to repentance. I'm, I loved you already then, and I designated you. I consecrated you for a special." Purpose, Galatians 1.15, Paul says the same thing. He says in Galatians 1.15 that God set him apart before he was born. God knew who Paul was. God had a plan for Paul. And God knows these babies. He, he loves these babies. He's forming these babies. And He has a plan for them. It would be wrong then to fight against God's plan by killing these individuals, before they ever have an opportunity at life, an opportunity to to carry out the plan that God has for their life. Let me ask you a question now. Let's shift gears. I, I think those biblical passages speak clearly to, to the issue and the way that God views human beings. But let me just ask you a personal question this morning. Let me ask it this way. Because sometimes we're, we're able to so easily just... Make it an impersonal thing. It's these babies out here are these, the, these fetuses and we can just separate it from ourselves. But let me ask you a question this way. Was that you in your mother's womb? Was that you in your mother's womb? It's easy for living people to claim uh, the right to end a pregnancy. But all of us here, I think, are glad, most of us hopefully, are glad that our mothers chose life. We're glad that that when our mothers found out they were expecting us, they decided to move forward and and to give birth to us and to care for us. Was that you in your mother's womb? Are you glad that your mother cared for you? If if your mother had an abortion when she was expecting, would you be here? The obvious answer, right, is no, I wouldn't be. So was that you in your mother's womb? And the obvious answer is, yes, it was. Are you a human being? Are you an individual? Yes, you are. If she had had an abortion, would she have ended your life? Yes, she would have. Babies inside the mother's womb are human beings. And to end their life is to end a human life. It's so obvious. How do we miss it? Of course, these are human beings. You know, it's if if a mother aborts a baby, it's not a matter of what might have been, but what what was and no longer is. Sometimes I sometimes I start talking about stuff like this and I think, you know, people think I'm just crazy or weird. Maybe I'm the only one that does. But you ever go back in your life and just think, you know, if we had done things differently, like my life would be different. You know, Uh, one of the regrets I have is right out of school, high school, I, I knew the Lord was calling me to ministry and. I just was unsure about things. We got married young, Bonnie and I, and, and we, we went to Louisville. And we had a plan to go and to tour the, the seminary and the, the Bible college there. Like, we weren't even married yet, uh, but we, we kind of thought that's what we were going to do. But just fear and just different factors in our life. We, we drove to Louisville. We met there, and, and we decided not to go. And we waited. We, I think we waited over two years and then that's finally when we said, okay, we know God wants us to go here. And we delayed that for two years. And, and sometimes I go back and I think, man, I wish so bad I would have just started earlier. Maybe I could have got more schooling. I could have got done earlier. All of these things, got into ministry earlier. All of those things, what, what might have been different? But one of the things that plays out in my mind, I'm dragging this out here. I think, well, you know, the children that we've adopted and even the biological children that we've given birth to, all that would be different. We, we went for two years and lived near my family, but but that's where we adopted William and Brandon and, and later Josh. And, and then we had the children that we have now because things played out. And I just think God's got me where he wants me. He's given me the children. All that would be different. But you see, that's, that's just simply a potential alternative. But when it comes to to babies in the mother's wombs. This is not just a, a, a potential alternative. These are babies that, and, and lives that actually do already exist. And when, when mothers have abortions and when fathers and boyfriends push their wives and girlfriends to have abortions, they're ending a life that already exists. So it is not a matter of, of what might have been. It's a matter of what was and no longer is. A human life has been ended when abortion when an abortion occurs, let me ask you another question to consider. What changes fundamentally from a, a baby, from the time that they're inside the mother's womb to when, they're, when, when birth occurs? What is it that, that takes this, this thing inside of a mother's womb and changes it from a non-human being, a non-life, into a life? Uh, John uh, Klusendorf, Scott Klusendorf, rather, uh, gives us four questions to ask. Well, well, is it the size? Uh, Is it the size that makes the difference? You can remember this with with the acronym SLED, S-L-E-V, SLED. Uh, Is it the size that changes it from non-human to a human being? One person said it this way in answer to that question, the five foot eight frame of a teenage son guarantees him no more right to life than the 23 inch frame of his little sister in his mother's arms. Size is morally irrelevant. The little baby that you're holding, uh, the fact that they get bigger doesn't make them more valuable or make their life any different. They, they just grow and they mature. There's some changes that happen, but they, they don't fundamentally change from non human into human. Size is morally irrelevant. One inch, 23 inches, 68 inches does not matter. It is morally irrelevant in deciding who should be protected. We know what we're doing in killing the smallest. What about this? The level of development. Well, again, if we apply that, uh, you know, is, is a one-month-old infant, non-human, as they get bigger, they, they, they grow into being human beings? No, we, we understand that. Does the fact that sometimes, well, they don't have reasoning capabilities inside their mother, but, but little, a little brand-new uh, baby does not, a one-month-old does not have reasoning capabilities either in the same way? That develops over time, but we recognize that that, that baby is a human being. Outside and inside the womb, the infant cannot yet reason, but it is a human person, so that can't be what changes. What about environment? Is the fact that, that this is inside the mother, does that change it from being uh, human into non human? And does there's just a the short little journey, you know, that, that seven or eight inch journey out the birth canal, is that what changes it magically from being a, a non human being into a human being? Is it the level of dependence? This is the last thing, the level of dependence. The fact that, that, that this baby's dependent upon his mommy. Does that, does that make it less human? Well, we know the elderly are dependent. There are people with medical conditions that are dependent on machines and drugs. And of course, even babies after they're born, they're, they're completely dependent upon their mother for some time. No, that, the answer is that doesn't make it a non-human being. In fact, the more dependent a little one is on us, the more responsibility we typically feel to protect him and not less. So, so that flips it upside down. I don't think anything there, and, and you could think of a million other things, there, there is nothing that fundamentally changes from the time this, this baby is inside of its mother's womb to the time it comes out. It is a human life. Consider this, we, we treat we, we treat babies inside the mother, mother's womb as, as human beings. The doctor comes in the room right, "Hi, Mom, how are you doing? you excited about this baby?" right? Because they, they understand there's a baby there. State laws punish the and treat killing the unborn as, as homicide. Mothers who miscarry instinctively grieve as though their child has died often. Because to them, they understand what's happened here. I've lost a child. Well, well, you know, and and sometimes people are insensitive with this. Oh, big deal. It wasn't born yet. It wasn't, you know, it was a child here. It was inside of me. Mothers and children are bonding already at that at that point. They mothers know that and, and it grieves them because they understand there's a human life there. Doctors will perform fetal surgery to save the life of an unborn baby. Consider this as well. Many abortion advocates, and they're becoming more and more bold in the way that they talk, but many abortion advocates, when, they, when they're being candid and bold about it, they do not deny the fact that they are taking a human life. They, they understand this. John Piper said this. He said, I took an abortionist, and, and John Piper has been pretty famous for, for opposing abortion, speaking out against it, and pleading with, with mothers to, to uh, not end their their baby's life and and so he's taking abortionists out to lunch to try to convince him and he says I, I was prepared to give him ten reasons why the unborn are human beings but he stopped me and he said I know that we are killing children I was stunned he said it's a matter simply of justice for women it would be a greater evil to deny women the equal right to reproductive freedom which means women should be no more encumbered by the consequences of an unplanned pregnancy than men. That equal freedom from the burden of bearing unwanted children is the basis for abortion that politicians so often refer to again and again when they talk about equal rights for women. We know we are killing children. There have been abortionists who have uh, understood this, come to this, and, and turned away from uh, the practice of of doing these abortions after seeing, and, and nurses, after seeing what re- what this really is, and seeing what these babies look like after they are aborted. One, I, I found this article on, on Salon.com. This is Mary Elizabeth Williams, and this is a, a pro-abortion advocate, uh, uh, and, and she just says it very clearly. Uh, this is the title of the article, So What If... Abortion ends life. So what if abortion ends life? She says this, of all the diabolical... I'm going to read quite a bit here because this is just so bold. But I think this is what everybody knows. I, I think there's a, a political way in which people have to kind of couch their arguments and be careful. But but, but I think this is what people who who are have thought through the issue, this is where they are. She says this, of all the diabolically clever moves that anti-choice lobby has ever pulled, Surely one of the greatest has been its consistent co-opting of the word life. Life. Who wants to argue with that? Who wants to be on the side of not life? That's why the language of those who support abortion has for so long been carefully couched in other terms. While opponents of abortion eagerly describe themselves as pro-life, the rest of us have to scramble around with not nearly as big-ticket words like choice or reproductive freedom. The life conversation is often too thorny to even broach. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. So she's saying, we, we know this is human life. I knew it was, I've had these babies inside, me. I know that's human life. And yet I still advocate for the practice of abortion, She goes on in this article, and you can find this on, on Slate.com if you want to read the full thing, but she says this. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Here she's saying, look, the the fact that this baby's dependent on her means that her life and what she wants, not just health issues here, you notice that, it's not just, you know, in in the rare case in which a mother's life might be at at risk she's saying no just just the general good nature of her life uh, if anything is impeding that her life and what she wants in her life is more important than the life of this baby not so says the word of god these are babies if they're human beings they're made in the image of god but this is what she's arguing let me continue here she says when when we on the pro pro pro-choice side get cagey around the life question it makes us illogically contradictory. She says, I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies were vastly different But that's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same. Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. This is what we're getting at here. When we try to act like A pregnancy doesn't involve human life. We wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term. Dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Are you human only when you're born? Only when you're a viable outside of the womb? Are you less of a human life when you look like a tadpole than when you can suck suck your thumb? Let me read this this final paragraph here. She says, In an op-ed on why I am pro-choice in the Michigan Daily this week, Emma Menear stated quite perfectly that some argue that abortion takes life. But I know that abortion saves life too. She understands that it saves lives not just in the most medically literal way, but in the roads that women have, the choices that they get to go down and and the possibilities for them and their families. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus indeed is a life. She ends with these chilling words, a life worth sacrificing. There are certain lives according to her and her worldview that, that are worth sacrificing in pursuit of what these women and what these men really want. Don't let anything get in your way. Don't let anything impede you. Don't let anything slow you down from the career that you want or the level of success that you want. Not even, not even a, a little baby. Don't let that slow you down in, in your pursuits. And this help, helps us transition this morning to sort of what I, I call the ugly side of abortion. We're always told, if you just watch sort of the, the way that this is spun, we're told that this is all about the health of women. We're told that abortion is a health issue and that it's only usually in the cases of rape or or, or when the life of the mother is is at stake. And. And of course, couched in those terms, it's so easy to say, well, maybe, you know, I mean, if it's the baby's life or the mother's life, well, I understand that. But as you see here, she says that it saves lives and not just in the most medically literal way. In other words, it's about the success of the woman, her mental health and, and everything else that goes with it. That's what they mean when they say the life of the mother. It's not just like, well, this, this woman's going to die or this baby's going to die and we've got to make a choice. That almost never happens. This is somebody saying, hey... I want my life. And I don't want this little baby to get in the way. And so my life is more important. The life that I want to live, my, my, my prosperity, my career is more important than another human being. And so we'll end the life of this baby so I can have what I want. It's not an issue of the health of the mother. There are other motivations that, that become clear when you look at, at the numbers. First of all, we see that abortion is a practice that discriminates against the poor and minorities. It is a practice that discriminates against the poor and the minorities. I'm not going to read all the statistics. We'll just say this. Blacks and Latinos are are roughly just a little over 20% of the population, and yet they have 56% of the abortions. And and of course, along with the, the minority status, of these people, there's also uh, the fact that these are, are usually or typically very often uh, people in lower classes as, as well uh, on, the, on the socioeconomic scale. And so it is a practice that discriminates against minorities and the poor. And one of the things that is astounding is, is when you think about the fact that 94% of America's abortion facilities are in the inner city. They're targeting a certain sect of people, a certain group of people that happen to be a lot of minorities and a lot of the poorer people among us. They're targeting those groups. It is a practice that discriminates against the poor and the minorities. And so this is an issue of social justice. This is an issue of caring, yes, for these unborn babies, but also caring for those who are minorities and for the poor. There are other ways. And, and so let me be careful to say this. Like if you don't care anything about minorities and you don't care about the poor, don't make this one one issue. Uh, look, there, there are many different issues that we need to care about when it comes to minorities and, and poverty. But this is one of those issues. It's something we need to, to recognize. In fact, uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of, of Planned Parenthood. Uh, it's been made clear through some of her own writings that, that this was part of her mindset. In fact, this is a, a quotation from, from a letter that she wrote. Uh, she said this, We do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea, if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. That's from Margaret Sanger, the fa- founder of Planned Parenthood. Listen, this is an age-old tactic to get rid of people that, that, that rulers and leaders don't want. It goes back all the way to biblical times and you think about Pharaoh killing the babies in Egypt. What was he doing? He was exterminating the ones that they didn't want. These, these Israelite children, these Hebrews, they're, they're getting to be too many of them. and They make great slaves, but, but we don't want them to overcome us. And, and, and there can be no doubt, I think, that in some ways that this is part of the plan in, eliminate, in eliminating vast numbers, millions of those who would be dependent on, on social programs and, and so on. Let's just get rid of the people that we don't want, the people that are a burden on society. 94% of abortion clinics are in the areas that target these kinds of people. Pharaoh and Herod use. These same tactics. Not only is it a practice that discriminates against the poor and minorities. It is a sexist practice as well. It is a practice that discriminates in many places against women. In China, where there are, are policies on how many children you can have, it is used uh, as a means of sex selection. So, so these couples are getting pregnant. They want to have children, but they know they can only have one or two children. And, and they want a boy to carry on the family name. And so they get pregnant. They're having a girl. Let's get rid of this one. Try again. It is a, a practice that discriminates against women as well. It's a practice that discriminates against those with special needs. For example, children with with Down syndrome are often uh, targets of this. I I don't know a better way to say it. Uh, There's an article in in the Telegraph in in London in 2014 that says this, Unfortunately, society goes through peaks and troughs of sympathy toward the disabled, and we risk entering a darker age. National the National Screening Committee has approved a simple blood test for Down syndrome that in many ways is wonderful news It should reduce the need for invasive testing procedures, which trigger around 350 cases of miscarriages every year But what do most women do when their baby tests positive for Downs? They abort around 90% of pregnancies that involve the condition end in a termination In 2014, 693 abortions were carried out for this reason. A jump of 34% since 2011. Three years. 34%. In fact, uh, let me just finish reading this. The rise is blamed on increased access to blood tests via private clinics. American campaigners warn of the risk of extinction. This means is that that people with with Down syndrome may not be around anymore. If we continue this, this practice... In Denmark, the head of a midwife association blandly told a newspaper, when you can discover almost all the fetuses with Down syndrome, then we are approaching a situation in which almost all of them will be aborted. My brother-in-law, and that's what he calls me, brother-in-law, has Down syndrome. And I love him. And he brings great joy to our life. And uh, it's sad for me to think about the reality that parents are going to be hindered. Yes, there are are difficulties. Uh, Yes, yes, there are special challenges that come with with having a child who who, who has Down syndrome. Uh, There there are certain things that that are difficult and certain aspects of life that they might miss out on. But there is a human life. There is a life that brings joy. Uh, there, There is a life that is special. And it is made in the image of God and has great worth and value. And how dare we target 90% of these children simply because they, they have uh, some, some disabilities. It is also a, a selfish and materialistic practice. As we saw the article that was written uh, that, that said the life of the mother includes not just strictly speaking medically her life, uh, but, but the life that she wants, the career that she wants. Now, I understand the difficulty and sometimes the, the, the crushing weight it must be uh, for a woman who has certain aspirations and certain plans to find out that that's all going to be put on pause because she has a child. But that doesn't make it right to take the life of the children so that we can have the material things that we want, so that we can have the career and the life that we want. It's a shameful practice. It's a practice that punishes the defenseless for the sins of, of others. As she said here, and, and what was said in one of the articles, was uh, the, the fact that, that women often want the same freedom that men have. And yes, men are at, at fault in this as much as women are. Because so often the women that are having abortions, the women that are moving in this direction, are, are women who have been used and then left to deal with the problem on their own. So, so they're they're at a loss. What what am I going to do? How, how can I take care of this this child? This man has uh, he he enjoyed uh, being with me, but now that there's some responsibility, I, I'm out of here. I'm going. And and it, it, it what it does then is it simply passes that on. The woman has taken advantage of, uh, or the man has taken advantage of the woman, and and, and used her. And now the woman then is just passing that on to the baby so often. It makes the babies the ones that ultimately bear the brunt. And while it's wrong to be left high and dry, while it is wrong and sinful and we need to address the issue of men not taking the responsibility that they ought, it is just as wrong then to punish a defenseless baby for that fact. It's also an idolatrous practice It's an idolatrous practice. It it seeks to unseat God from His throne. You understand that the giving of life and the taking of life is a prerogative that belongs to God and it belongs to God alone. It is His. And we overstep the bounds when we, whether it's the elderly with euthanasia or whether it's the unborn. When we say this life doesn't need to be, we are taking the place of God and we are saying, I'm God. God God gave this life. God is in the process of forming this human being. But I'm more important than God. I know better than God. I'm ending this life. This life doesn't need to be. It is an idolatrous practice. What can we do? We'll close with this. What can we do? I think hopefully most of us are, are convinced by these realities and the truth of Scripture. But what can we do? We may not be able to end abortion as an institution here in America. And listen, the, the, the political happenings, that's not our only hope, okay? That's not the only place that we need to go with, with this issue. In some respects, uh, the political scene is not even our best hope. Our best hope for, for making an impact on abortion is not that we get the right people elected and get the, the right Supreme Court justices that will uphold uh, a protection for human life. We pray that that would happen. We can hope that that can happen. We can vote that that would happen. And yet that is not a likely scenario in in any situation. And there are other ways. There are better hopes that that we can pursue, I think. Because we know that every single human life, every single baby in its mother's womb is a human life. Wonderfully made in the image of God and of infinite value. We should work to end not abortion just as an institution, but any single instance of abortion that we can. Because every single human life matters. Every abortion that is stopped. We may not stop abortion in America, but every single abortion that is stopped is a life that is saved. And it is another baby that gets the opportunity to experience life. So what can we do? Well, we we ought to. We ought to look to our leaders and we ought to hold them accountable. But, but in addition to this, we can speak up and, and influence the court of public opinion. Now, I had this all lined out as far as this sermon series and when to preach what sermons. And, and this was the week that I was preaching uh, this sermon. Uh, it just so happened that, that this past week, that with all the political things and, and the debate, this became a, a big topic, and especially in social media, right? On Facebook and Twitter and different places. I've seen a lot of people who I've never seen say anything begin to talk about this. And, and when that happens, it makes me think that maybe this is just what, what some people say, this is just a political issue they're using. May, maybe it is. We need to be those who are speaking about this issue not just every two or every four years. This is an issue we need to have on the, on the forefront of our minds all the time. It's something that we ought to be putting out the information that is, that is, out, that is out there. The danger, the health risk that abortion really is to women. Uh, the, the fact that these are human beings. All of the facts that we have that we can put out there. And the way that we can speak. The way that we can influence our friends and family members. We ought to be speaking And seeking to influence the court of public opinion, even if we cannot uh, influence the the court system. Secondly, we can seek to help those who are are likely to have abortion. As we said, this is something that targets uh, those who are impoverished, those who are in need. Uh, This is something that targets women who are vulnerable, women who have been left by their families and by their boyfriends or husbands to deal with a problem. And we need to be those who will step in and show the love of Christ. I've heard testimony after testimony from crisis pregnancy centers where where women say, look, I I was going to have an abortion. I I ended up at this crisis pregnancy, pregnancy center. These people loved me. They cared for me. They helped me where I was at. And because of that, I have this little baby here with me now. I didn't have the abortion because these people loved me and they cared for me. And I realized I'm not in this alone. There are people who will help. And we need to be those people. This, again, is something we need to be doing all the time. The other thing that we can do, and part of that, is that we can be those who are involved in such things as foster care and adoption Look, it's one thing to say that we're we're pro-life, but but where are these babies going to go? And that's one of the things that that proponents of of abortion will say, well, you, you're pro-life, you know, but what, what about all these babies? When they have these babies, where are they going to go? Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to provide for them? And I would say, church, that's us. That's us. That's our responsibility. Whether it's foster care or adoption, we ought to be those who who are involved. Those who are stepping in to take care. Yes, we're pro-life. We're pro-life before they're born and we're pro-life after they're born. We want to care for their life. It's not just a political issue. It's not just something we use to sway voters. It's something that we do to take care of those who are in need. Again, I'll close with this story. Um... Most of you don't know, well, none of you, I guess, knew Josh. Josh was our baby that we adopted. I, I probably should have just not, not talked about this, but um, we've been involved in foster care and, and adoption. And uh, Josh was one of those babies, the worst case scenario. You know, people say, well, what about rape? What about incest? We, you have to do let people have abortions in those, in those cases. And uh, Josh was our baby that we adopted that was the result of, of incestuous rape. And he had all kinds of medical problems. He had all kinds of, of difficulties in life. And ultimately his, his life ended as a result of, of that and seizures and different things that he had because of uh, just as a result of all of that. And yet for, I was trying to remember, three and a half or four years he lived with us. And we loved him as, as our own child. And we took him in and we cared for him. And although we helped him, he, he brought joy to our life. We loved him and he loved us and he loved his life. I think if you could have asked Josh, Josh, do you want life, even if it's going to be three and a half or four years long? Do you want life? Do you want to, uh, or Do you want your mother to end this right now? I think Josh would have said that he wanted life. And that's what we need to speak for. We need to speak for those babies. They can't speak for themselves. They they, they, cannot, they, they don't have a voice. And, and mothers and, and, and fathers are, are taking their children and just killing them, getting rid of them because they're inconvenient or because they are special difficulties. And we need to be those who will speak up and defend the right of their, that they have to life. You see, we talk about the right to life. It's the right that they have. These, these are people, their rights are being trampled on. We believe that, don't we? That, that we as Americans, right, we have the, the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And their right is being stripped away from them. And nothing's being done about it. And we need to be those who will stand up for their right. And we need to be those then that will come and seek to help them after they have this life. Because there are many cases in which they will need our help. Pray with me today. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You and we do ask, Lord, that You would bring an end to this.